When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome, everyone, to Soccer Made in Portland. Uh, we're out at the Timbers training facility today, uh, recording out here ahead of Thorns training. Big week of soccer to talk about from the weekend. Uh, and I, we have a guest uh, that I think Richard is especially excited about today <laughs> as well coming on the show. How can you tell? How yeah. can you tell? Well, I am partly excited about the fact that it was one of the best conversations that we've had on this podcast since I joined the show. But that's partly because... I. Th- like to think Paul Tenorio and I genuinely enjoy each other's conversation, but we're going to let that conversation go a little bit longer than most interviews because it's some really great analysis about the Timbers from a national perspective. So in that way, you're getting a better podcast than you would have if it's just <laughs> Jamie and me, but Paul Tenorio from The Athletic is going to be joining us in the middle of the show. Yeah. So stay around for that. Um, hopefully we don't sell him so high and then everyone's not going to want to listen to Pod Richard anymore. <laughs> What was that? I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, you said he's better. He's better podcast material than us. Yeah, I'm in disbelief that I said oh, yeah. that. I'm sorry. When you when you repeated it back to me, I was <laughs> stunned. So um, we we clearly are the best podcast that's available to us. <laughs> so um, yeah, so we're obviously looking forward to that. Just as we're looking forward to talking about this weekend's action, uh, which might go a little bit quickly because we don't have any goals to talk about. But in that way, we actually have a game that kind of played out maybe almost exactly like you would have predicted. Yeah. Um, Timbers obviously went down to LAFC, got a scoreless draw. Uh, and my prediction, I'd say it was, I obviously didn't predict no goals, but, but I, I got the draw one, one, uh, your side bet Timbers to have less than 40% of possession. It was close for a while. I was watching it, was it towards close. the end of the game. It got down into the 41s and then the red card happened. Yeah. So I, I don't think, I think we were both pretty close on, on kind of getting the feel of this game. I, I guess I've, I'm going to hand out points this week. Uh, oh, I've been looking forward to this ever <laughs> since our last show. I'm a little bit concerned with the, with the one, one draw getting the f- roughly, I think the feel of the game, yeah. not getting zero, zero. I'm going to give myself, um, 13.8 points. I think that's fair. Probably should give myself more based on last week, but I, I'm trying to be fair. Um, oh my gosh. Let me write that down because we have another podcast to record next week. <laughs> um, but you, what was the final possession if you? It was 43. Some, 
the number 43.8 pops to mind. But given my lack of accuracy with basic statistics on the last show, <laughs> I don't want to be too precise about this one. <laughs> So, I mean, I think you got the feel of it as well, um, but you, you side bet obviously wasn't right. Um, I don't know. I'll, I'll give you a 7.3 Holy cow. That was awesome. I really am starting to feel very guilty about yeah, what I should. did last that, week. That's my goal. But, but let's talk about reviewing the game a little bit. I mean, I, I think the big talking point coming out of this game is just that the Timbers can compete with any team in MLS and they're consistently proving that you, you posted some statistics, uh, on Twitter after the game, uh, since their loss at the New York Red Bulls uh, in March, the Timbers are 200, 2-0-4, uh, versus the top six teams in MLS. Um, so how, how do we view this now? I, I mean, I think, um, you can't really call this a fluke anymore. No, I don't think it's a fluke. And more than that, we talked a lot about, the nuts and bolts that have gone into performances like these, I don't think any of us at this point are surprised that Giovanni Savarese can put out a formation, a defense, and a plan that can stifle almost anybody. So at this point, we either accept that as fact of what the Timbers are, or we just keep repeating ourselves and prove that we have no way to analyze soccer meaningfully. And I don't think we're that bad at this. The question is what they're going to be going forward as a team, somebody that can be more dangerous than they have been over the previous three months of the season. And in my opinion, my very biased, I work for the Timbers opinion, the Timbers created more chances than LAFC did. Did they create better chances? I'm not sure because Adama Diamande's chance at the end of the first half and Carlos Vela's chance in stoppage time were both really good chances. But in terms of quantity of chances, I think you can say that the Timbers clearly showed that in addition to having a plan to defend and keep MLS's best attack off the board, they had a plan to get forward and be dangerous. And these are things that I'm not sure we saw with regularity when Giovanni Savarese was first instilling this central midfield heavy approach in the FC Dallas game and in the weeks that follow. I think the evolution has, of this team is really, really intriguing right now and probably the number one story around this team. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting. We've talked we uh, a lot this year about kind of Savarese's ability to change from formations and be tactically flexible, but but I think we've talked less and, and needs to be noted is that the Timbers are have the same ideals um, game in and game out, and those are ideals are helping them get these results as well. Obviously, Savarese changes the formation again, goes back to the 5-3-2, essentially for Formation that they used at Atlanta. Um, but in terms of staying disciplined, staying compact, getting the right buy-in, the right mentality, I think those are the ideals that are, are kind of driving this team forward right now. And while, yes, they can effectively change the formation, I think that makes them a little bit less predictable uh, for other teams. I, I think that the fact that they, they can these ideas are, are sticking with them from game to game is, is why they're having so much success and have been able to go now on a 14-game unbeaten streak overall. So let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of this game, and let's see how many times in the show I can say nuts and bolts. I think we're up to two at this point. <laughs> it's really embarrassing for somebody that works with words for a living, although I work with words from my fingertips, not from my lips necessarily. So let's go to the nuts and bolts. Ding, third time about this. I think the Timbers at various points of this game, if they didn't necessarily control the play, they certainly dictated a tempo and a style of game that was consistent with their tactics. And in that way, for almost the entirety of this game, I thought they looked comfortable. Were they threatening? Were they always effective? Maybe not necessarily, but this game played out exactly as I think they would have predicted it would have played out when they were laying out these plans during the week. 
Yeah, I thought the first 20 minutes in particular were were very good for the Timbers. I, I think they probably surprised LAFC coming in on their home field and being able to outshoot them and create absolutely create the better chances in the game in the first 20 minutes. Um so I, I think it is the way the Timbers probably laid it out. At the same time, I do walk away from this game thinking, yeah, the Timbers created chances early in the game. Um, they were the better team for the first 20 minutes. I think LAFC settled into the game more. The Timbers still were comfortable and still were creating chances throughout the game while also doing a good job to defend LAFC. And then at the end, they go up a man, um, play the final six minutes plus stoppage time uh, with that advantage. And they still walk away with a scoreless draw. Even though it's going to LAFC and this is absolutely a positive result, I do walk away feeling like, man, the Timbers could have got three points if they'd just Thank been you. a bit... I, yeah, I don't think Thank everyone you. agrees with this, but... It, um, a bit more clinical in the final third. They've been a little bit better with these chances and taken advantage of playing a man up. Um, there were they had opportunities to turn this into a huge uh, three point win on the road rather than a, a positive, um, but but obviously not as a successful result. So obviously we're alluding a little bit. I shouldn't say obviously because maybe not everybody saw this, but I posted on Twitter after the game that. You know, it didn't seem like the team shifted gears once Lee Nguyen got his red card. They essentially had 16 minutes or 14 minutes, I can't remember exactly, once you added in the stoppage time to go out and get the game's only goal, playing 11 on 10. Merritt Paulson came at me immediately, said it was the right decision, what happened. And I think he might be right. If the team was just dead tired and couldn't make a push, you have to respect Giovanni Savarese's decision because he was on the ground there. In the abstract, though, if you're a team that already has a very strong defensive record, the other team goes down a person, and the record of teams scoring with 10 men against 11 is obviously not great. It's also not non-existent. You're playing with three central defenders already, plus a holding midfielder. Throw your fullbacks forward. Get get some midfielders going forward. Or just try to hold the ball more and kill off the game that way. Uh, we had some, I had some pushback from our former host, on Twitter about how he disagreed with the idea that a team with 11 men should be more aggressive than against a team with 10 men. I just disagree with that. He said, well, Vela and Latif Blessing would be dangerous. We're getting into areas that you would have to vacate. You don't necessarily have to vacate those. You can just be more aggressive, period. Or you can change your tactics a little bit. Or with a substitute that you have left, you can take off a defender and throw on Fernando Adi. Now, Talking to people behind the scenes, I'm convinced that the team was just out of state fatigue-wise where it didn't make sense to do that. In the abstract, though, it, like you said, it does seem like it was a really good opportunity to get three points. Yeah, um, and for me, I, the first 20 minutes, I, I think they really could have taken better advantage of that uh, than they did. Even though it was a very good first 20 minutes, um, I, I think they had an opportunity to score a goal and have to be a little bit disappointed that it was 0-0 after that segment of the game, at the po- at which point I think LIFC came back into it. Yeah. Okay, the other side of the coin. Fifth shutout of the season. Perhaps more impressively, it was the first time LAFC, the league's best attack going into the game, has ever been shut out at home. Only the second time ever that they had been shut out. I don't think any of us are necessarily surprised either that it happened. Are we taking the Timbers defense for granted or are we appropriately valuing them by not being surprised when they shut out the best team in the league. I, I think that this comes down to both the back line, but also the midfield. And I think Chara had an incredible game. You did? Um, it's, yeah, I thought he was great, especially mm. in the first half. Um, obviously, it looks like you might disagree. No, I don't, dis- I don't disagree at all. I just 
Uh, I'm genuinely interested in. I, I think that this. some of the tackles he was able to put in were was were very helpful, and I, and I think they just sort of set um, set the tone of the game early mm-hmm. on as well. Uh, I think he can't be uh, you can't underestimate him when you're talking about this defense because it's not just the back line but the Timbers have started to get some consistency on the back line with uh Mabiala uh Mabiala Cascante uh Valentin and Powell back there and I think that consistency is probably helping a little bit too they are getting good performances overall um I think there's maybe been a little bit more still a little inconsistency from Powell but Cascante I I think has really stepped up in that position I think Mabiala has gotten better as the season's gone on and we've talked about Zarek Valentin and the role he's been able to play this year so yeah I I think this Timbers team is a good defensive team along with the personnel they are just finding a way to stay organized disciplined and compact and and like I said those are some of the ideals that Savaresi has been able to drill into this team and get them to do game in and game out I think Soccer is always a balance between how much you're willing to risk in order to incur the risks of giving up a goal. And I think if you were to draw the the Timbers formation and describe their tactics in an abstract way, you would say that the team has a conservative approach. And in fact, on our conference call that we had with Giovanni Savarese today, one of the questions kind of implied, you know, you're playing five at the back, so you must be playing defensive. But the tactics beneath that, the style with which you're playing, can totally shift what appears to be a conservative approach into something that's a little bit more aggressive. And what I really admired about what we saw on Sunday was that the foundation is as solid as we've ever seen. The the actual block, how they're playing there, while still finding ways to be more aggressive going forward. And so part of the reason that I was like, oh, you thought Shara had a great game. It's not that I didn't think he had a great game. But the first thing that came to mind to me is that the actual tactic the principles that he has with the team defending with just shined through to me. Like I didn't think LA was able to get to the places they wanted to go. And to me, that is the key. That was the absolute key to keeping them off the scoreboard. But LAFC, we're going to see them again on Wednesday, us open cup match, bank of California stadium, seven Thursday quarterfinal match, which means a semifinal uh, space is up for grabs. Semifinals is the farthest the Timbers have ever gone in this competition. So there is a chance to match history with a win on Wednesday. Jamie, are they going to win on Wednesday? <laughs> uh, I think that's for the prediction section, but I, I think, I think that the way the Timbers are playing, they have a really good chance to, to win this game. I, I think assuming that both teams rotate their lineups, it's going to look something different for LAFC as well. I absolutely expect that the Timbers ha- will have to rotate their lineups. Oh, they yeah. are going to, they're navigating a schedule of three games in seven days, playing Montreal on the weekend on Saturday. Uh, we saw that players like Eric Williamson and, and Modu Jadama were with the team now in LA. I expect they're going to play a role in Wednesday's game. So this is going to be a very different looking Timbers team. And I think probably at least a somewhat looking out. Uh, somewhat different looking LAFC team as well. Um, so I think that sort of maybe doesn't make it as difficult to approach the same team twice in four days because it is going to be a different look from the Timbers. But obviously the Timbers are going to have to navigate the fact that they've just seen LAFC. Uh, they're going to ha- Savarese is going to have to maybe change uh, a little bit of his tactics. He's not going to want to do the exact same thing um, against the same team at the same place uh, right after playing them on Sunday. He's going to want to make some changes and, and be a little bit unpredictable um and obviously the lineup we're going to see a lot of changes there i don't have anything else to add on lafc considering we've talked about them for two straight shows and we've talked about the result this sunday i think there's going to be a way different lineup for the timbers i think people are going to look at that lineup and say the timbers don't want to win open cup 
They want to win Open Cup. They just have a deep team, and they're using their deep team. They're going to have a player, well, I don't know for sure, since I haven't asked Gio who's going to start, but I would suspect Fernando Adi starts on Wednesday. They're going to have a designated player in their starting lineup, one of the best compensated strikers in the league. So to me, it's going to be difficult to say that they don't care. But I also understand that people will see that started what you thought was your best 11 on Sunday and you're not rolling them back. It's two days off. Yeah, they they just can't do it. Larry Smabiala is not playing. (laughs) Diego Valeri is not playing. But Diego Chara might be because Diego Chara as might we'll be. get to uh, a little bit in our discussion of Montreal, he is suspended for that game for yellow card accumulation. So he might be a guy, um, along with potentially Fernando Audi, two veterans in there on in Wednesday's game. Well, let's go ahead and talk about Saturday's game against Montreal. It's an 8 p.m. start at Providence Park. To me, when I look at a game like this and some of the other games that are coming up, I think about the schedule evening out. So right now the Timbers are minus four in terms of road games played and home games played. They've got, they're going to make up that. They're going to make up places in the standings if they're successful at home and take uh, advantage of the advantages that they have at home. And this game just screams as a makeup game. It's against one of the worst four or five teams in the league, five or six teams in the league, albeit a team that has proven themselves very dangerous at Providence Park in the past. You're going to have your a lot of your starters on full rest. You won't have Diego Chara, though. And we obviously know that recent history without Chara has not been successful. I think this is a perfect opportunity to put that narrative to rest. I think, well, I don't make predictions anymore. I think there's a high likelihood of success on Saturday against Montreal. I think the when we saw when Chara wasn't in the game, I, I think when they played Sporting Kansas City um, a month or so ago... I think it was still a really good performance from the Timbers. And I, I felt like that was a narrative coming out of that, that because of the formation they were able to use, maybe with the three defensive midfielders, they were able to mask the absence of Chara a little bit better than they have in the past. Not to say that they weren't missing something. They're always going to be missing something without him in the lineup. But it wasn't as um, problematic as it's been uh, in the past, which has led to this to not only them not being able to win with him, without him in the lineup, but having a negative 21 goal differential dating back to july 2015 differential so, differential didn't that's what I, I forgot everybody says that <laughs> that's one of my pet thieves i always call it a goal difference and not a differential but i realize that no matter how correct i think i am i sound like a jerk for even for interrupting you <laughs> yes, to bring you it up. Do. um but yeah so i i think that Savarese is going to have a game plan that's going to try to navigate the absence of Chara. And I think we saw that against Kansas City, which which does give me a little bit more hope for this game. I think if they lose this game or even draw it, it's not going to be because Diego Chara is absent. We saw against Sporting Kansas City, they can play without Diego Chara. It's because the 11 people that he chooses on Saturday didn't execute the plan or didn't, or the plan was bad. Um, I don't think you can say that Diego Chara is the make or break component of Saturday's game. Should we go through some questions before we talk to Paul Tenorio? Yes. Uh, Jennifer asks, is the Timbers' current unbeaten streak more due to Gio and his tactics or the depth of the roster? Could we possibly have seen the same kind of results with Porter as the coach as this deep a team, or could Gio have done the same with players we had previously? So I kind of want to talk about that last part first. If we swapped Caleb Porter into this new environment, would we be seeing the same results? I don't think we'd be seeing the same results. I I think Caleb Porter is a successful coach, and and I think this is a deeper team than he has he had. So I I think that he would have success with this group. But I I think that Savarese has a different 
thought process when he when he approaches coaching games. I, Caleb Porter, I just isn't this tactically flexible, and I, I think that has been a huge part of the success is being able to adapt to every team going on the road to difficult places and finding a game plan that's going to get the team a good result. Um, I think that Caleb Porter would have been able to come up with good game plans. I think he's capable of getting a bought-in disciplined team. But I'm not sure if he would have come up with all the tactical tweaks that we've seen Giovanni Savaresi be able to do to, to get results out of games that I think from our perspective, we're expecting to see a loss. Yeah, I have nothing meaningful to add to that. So let's go to the next question from Jason. Does Ridgewell still have a place on the roster? I can confirm that he does. He's one of the 30 <laughs> people that the Timbers have under contract to the first team right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that we're going to see Ritual on this team throughout the, the season. I have been asked when, obviously, Mayor Paulson alluded to the fact that the Timbers might be looking to sell a big player, potentially in this window, um, if the opportunity arises. Um, and some people have asked, could that be Liam Ritual? I do not think that's going to be really Liam Ritual. I don't think he would have a ton of value right now with his, with his age and how injury-prone he's been if the Timbers tried to offload him. Um, and I think he still can play an important role here. I, I think he's going to run out his contract. I, I don't see him coming back next season. Uh, but I think through the rest of this year, we're going to see him make starts and, and see minutes. Uh, I don't, I think Savaresi rewards players that have done well. And, and if Julio Cascante and Larry Smobiala continue doing well, it's, it's not fair to them to just take, take Cascante out of the lineup to put Ridgewell in just for the sake of doing that. And given his age, it doesn't make a ton of sense to keep him on the 18 to come off the bench late in the game or something like that. So it's, I don't think it's that shocking to necessarily see him out of the 18, but yet still in a position where he could easily see minutes. Yeah, nothing to add to that either. So let's go to the next question <laughs> from Tom. Does Vitas have a place on the roster? And yes, I can confirm that he is one of the 30 players <laughs> you're, currently you're, signed to the first team roster. You're adding a lot to this Thank right you. now. Um, yeah, I, I, that one's a little bit uh, more surprising to me. I, I think at this point, I would have expected Vitas uh, at full health. Um, obviously, I had an injury to start the season, but at full health to be able to come back and compete and be better competition to try to win that spot back from Zarek Valentin as someone who's a more natural left back and was brought in at a significant salary. The Timbers obviously thought highly of him when they signed him. Uh, so I'm a bit surprised that he hasn't been able to win that spot back. Uh, and given that, I do kind of put him in the group of, yeah, maybe if there's the option here, uh, maybe they look to move him, him or Guzman or Audi. I think I've said that those three players are kind of players that are have a significant enough salary cap hit and just aren't finding a way to earn the playing time back right now. And um, the Timbers are at some point are going to have to make decisions around those three. Well, we have more to talk about regarding decisions that are going to be made during this transfer window, but we're going to bring somebody else in right now to talk about that with us. Paul Tenorio, you maybe know his work from the Washington Post, the Orlando Sentinel. Maybe more people know his work from 442 or recently MLSsoccer.com or The Athletic. He joined us earlier on Tuesday, and here is that interview. To talk from more a national perspective of what's going on, we're obviously in our own world covering the Timbers here, but I'm interested in hearing from you more about how, from a national perspective, you view the Timbers. They, they're obviously on a 12-game unbeaten streak at MLS play, 14-game unbeaten streak overall. How good are the Timbers uh, in the eyes of those outside of Portland? Yeah, you know, I think that what's been most interesting for me about Portland this season is that they have flown really under the radar in MLS in general, and I think that that works out in their favor. And 
there's probably a few reasons why. When you watch the Timbers, they're not the they're not the sexiest team in MLS. You know, they're not LAFC or Atlanta United where they're they're running and they're attacking and they've got these kind of dynamic personalities and you know they make you want to watch them and fall in love with them. What they are is a really good organized team and. I think sometimes we don't appreciate that as much as we should or we could. And so, you know, they've been able to kind of, um, kind of make this, this transition under, under Geo, uh, kind of quietly and to build something that has really, um, put them in the mix as a contender because they are so solid defensively that I think you could put them up against any team in MLS right now, and they're going to have a chance to to win. And a lot of times that's the ingredients for, for kind of winning in the playoffs and winning a championship, um, but it's not the ingredients to really be talked about or have the buzz of, of the national crowd. And so, you know, from my perspective here in Chicago and just kind of keeping an eye on the league from a national perspective, they, they, are, they are probably, um, you know, the, the best, dark horse contender that doesn't deserve to be called a dark horse contender you know it's it's understandable paul because the timbers went five games on the road to begin the season didn't get a win they come back home they face minnesota united that a lot of people don't have a ton of respect for that was their first win of the season was there a point where you kind of started looking at what was going on here in portland and said you know what i think they might be either for real or at least worth me considering whether they are for real Yes, definitely. Um, I, you know, I kind of started to get a feel. I, I did an interview with Gio when I was still writing for MLSsoccer.com um, about kind of the start of Portland and the fact that it didn't go well. Was, I think it was towards the end of March that we talked. And, you know, I, I was familiar with his work uh, in the NASL. I've spoken to him on several occasions. But what he said in that story really struck me as a, a coach who has an a really clear idea of what he's doing. And he was establishing himself early on and kind of drawing a line where he was saying, look, if you're on my side, you will see that things are going to work eventually. Um, if you fight this transition, if you fight this move, if you think that things are going to be handed to you because of what you've done in the past, you're wrong. And, you know, I felt like they hadn't yet had the big rewards of these these kind of moves, but there, there were these huge ideas of, of, you know, or I guess the kind of chess moves here where you're benching big name stars like Liam Ridgewell and the payoff was going to be to get everyone to buy in. And as soon as those results started to come, I knew that he had that locker room because when you stand up that tall early on and then that message starts to pay off with, with results, I think it creates a huge sense of buy-in. So from that early conversation, I kind of had a feeling that things could work really well. Now, I'm not saying I would have predicted 14 straight games unbeaten. And, you know, I'm not trying to say that they are going to win MLS Cup. But I did have that feeling early on that, that, that there was a really strong idea of what the team was going to be about. And that was about uh, discipline. And it was about buying in fully to whatever they were going to play, because as we've seen, it's been multiple different formations, multiple roles for, for different guys. Um, but the ideas behind those formations maintain uh, kind of the same 
concept and 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 the payoff has been really really big and I, I think that that's kind of that early vibe it was just kind of a feeling more so than it was the results what do you sort of think of the you, you mentioned it a little bit at the end there but in, in terms of the constant geo constantly changing his formation and shape uh, how do you sort of evaluate that it's very different obviously than what we saw with Caleb Porter uh, over the last five years mostly going with the four two three one uh, pretty much every game um, but it is something we've been looking at and thinking yeah that's been really important and effective for the Timbers I wonder um, from your perspective how you view that. Well, I think the conversation around formations and systems has changed in the last couple of years. And that's probably because more so than ever, formations have become flexible. And I think coaches really start to think about them as this is what we look like when we're defending. And this is what we look like when we're attacking. And then there are the teams that base their system on a philosophy. So if you're a pressing team, if you're a possession team, or if you're something in between. And I think um, no matter what kind of formation they the Portland's gone out in, uh, they, their concepts of how they want to defend, how they want to get their lines organized, um, they may vary slightly when you look at kind of adjusting to what another team across the field does best. Hey, we're going to take away the wings. We're going to overcrowd the middle of the field. Uh, but the concepts of how players – retreat and get back where they press on the field largely stay the same um, in the kind of big picture. And, you know, I think the flexibility of a team is crucial. I think we've seen that in the past with, with a lot of teams that have been successful um, as they're kind of figuring themselves out. You know, the first, first thing that kind of comes to mind for me is, is Columbus. Like I think Columbus has hit a different level as Greg Beralder has become a little less, rigid and, and sticking with the four two three one. Um and you know, I think we're seeing that a little bit in, in Portland. He's not overloading the team. I, I had an interesting conversation a few months ago with Belko Panovich of the Chicago Fire. Why are you always trying to change the formation in the game, uh before games and between games? And, you know, the message was largely, hey, this is what we have to do to kind of grind out the results right now. And I think um Portland's kind of the next layer of that. They have more talent on the roster than Chicago. It's this is what we're going to do to put ourselves in the best position to win. And then because we have the players that can um, execute it, A, and then break a game open, it takes it to that next step where we're seeing positive results coming week after week. Uh, so, you know, for me, the tactical flexibility um, makes it a little bit more difficult to prepare for Portland, but really it makes it a lot easier for Portland to prepare for other opponents because, they have these grand concepts that they work under, um, and then they can get really detail-oriented from week to week in how they want to um, specifically defend or specifically attack a certain opponent. Now, Paul, we've been asking you about some team-level stuff. I want to ask you about some individual players on the team because Fernando Adi's status out here is a big issue. You're the person who broke the Tomas Konechny news. But first, I want to ask you about something that Timbers fans have kind of grabbed onto this last couple months. Because after Diego Chara was injured last year in the playoffs and the season kind of fell apart after that, I think a lot of fans out here were hoping that the league would take notice and find a way to get him into this year's All-Star team. Apparently, Gerardo Martino did not notice because Diego Chara still is without an All-Star appearance. And I wanted to ask you why you think it is that the national, it's not just the media in this case, because obviously Gerardo Martino isn't 
part of the media, but why after all of these years that Diego Chara has been a little bit overlooked when we've seen other players of a similar profile like Osvaldo Alonso get some national recognition in a similar position with a similar role? Yeah, it's, it's tough. I mean, it, I think that, first of all, what Chara does, it, it, it is very specific. It's such a um, nuanced position that we tend to overlook it a lot. Um, but you're right. There has been more and more recognition paid to players in that position that can disrupt games. We saw it uh, with Ozzy Alonso in Seattle. We've seen it with Dax McCarty, um, even Bastian Schweinsteiger to a certain degree. There are examples you can pull from all over the league. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's for me, the all-star game conversation is always a tough one because there are so many factors that go into who gets selected to an all-star team behind the scenes that I think have less to do with who is the most deserving and more to do with, to start with, the most popular with the fan 11 that take up a, you know, a good chunk of the roster spot. But then with, with the coaches making the choices, they, a lot of times they're looking to uh, create a balanced roster that gives them some flexibility based off of that 11. And there's a recency, recency bias for those, those coaches um, uh, who, who a lot of times I think select based on guys who have impressed them when they're playing against them. And we, we lose sight of kind of the purpose of an all-star game, and that's to pick the best players in the league, the players who have been performing the best. I was talking to a former MLS coach uh, recently about Portland and what's made them work, and he, he made a comparison that I thought was really interesting, which is he thinks Chara is essentially the N'Golo Conte of the Portland Timbers. His work rate, his uh, ability to cover ground, his ability to take away – uh, weapons from the other team, uh, his clean play when he's on the ball, keeping it simple and not trying to do too much allows everyone else around him to do more. Um, we saw the love that Conte got in this World Cup, though I'll have a chuckle and, and draw even more of a parallel. Conte was left off of FIFA's best 11 in the tournament, uh, which is a joke. I mean, Paulinho from Brazil was on the team. Uh, I don't think anyone who actually watched the tournament would say that they would take Paulinho over in Golo Conte in any team in the world right now. So, um, you know, this is a position where a lot of guys have a chance to get overlooked. And I think, you know, playing the way he does, being a team first guy, doing the dirty work that allows everyone else uh, to have an easier night, um, you know, you're, you're prone to be overlooked. I do think, though, that as they keep getting positive results and as he keeps playing well, that recognition will pick up. And I would fully expect him not only to be a best 11 player this year if it continues. Uh, but to be right in the mix for the MVP conversation, you know, I think of, you know, Boston Schweinsteiger was in it halfway through last year for the fire of playing as a number six. You know, why not uh, Diego Chara? So to, to follow up on, on some of those other players um, coming in the Timbers, on the Timbers that we were talking about, uh, you were the, obviously the one that broke the news that the Timbers would be acquiring Tomas uh, Konechchi. Uh, still working on that last name. Um, but it, can you talk about that signing from your perspective and what you think he'll be, be able to bring to the Timbers? Yeah, you know, I think what's interesting with what a lot of MLS teams are doing now is, is they, they're finding this talent. And in Argentina, a lot of times, you have a very small window with players where the valuation on a player can go up uh, significantly uh, if they score two goals in three games in their domestic league or five goals in 12 games, all of a sudden 
a young prospect goes from being $3 million to $8 million. It can also go the other way around. If you're an $8 million player and you have a little bit of a quiet run, that price can dip. And it's worth the investment for MLS teams to take those players on loan, see if they can adjust, and see if maybe you can find an $8 million player for a bargain price. And I think that's what Portland hopes they have here. And uh, when you look at Tomas Konechny and what he's done uh, with Argentina's under-20s, um, the price was there for a while where a lot of people felt like he was going to be a big-money move to Europe. Uh, it hasn't happened. He's on a club team that is under pressure to win. They're, they're in some big continental tournaments, two of them right now. Uh, you know, Obviously, the, the Libertadores starts in the winter. They're in the Copa Sudamericana right now. Um, they need to, they're under pressure to play a lot of older players, and that's allowed them to kind of move some assets and try to capitalize on some places where they can make some money on younger players who, who are going to potentially see their value go down if they're not getting consistent minutes because San Lorenzo is playing uh, veteran players. What I like about this move for Portland, it gives them another attacking piece, and most importantly, it gives them a versatile attacking piece because as we've talked about, this is a very versatile system that Gio Savarese plays. Um, and, you know, this is a guy who can play on both wings. He can play underneath as a 10. He can play up top in a pinch. I think he's probably too small to be effective there for Portland, but he can do it. So you're going out and getting a guy who can play four different positions across the front line, um, and you're doing so on a low-risk uh, type of move because you're essentially taking him on a free loan with an option to buy. Uh, it's a smart move. It's, it's a move that's been structured to be as cap-friendly as possible, both in the short term and the long term. And I think it speaks to kind of how this league is moving forward in the big picture as well, in the type of talent it's looking for and in the type of deals it has to make under the current MLS structure. Um, because as the global market continues to be inflated and these prices continue to go up, it's much harder to sign guys on full transfers and not have them be DPs. This is a way to be able to do that, to bring guys in, uh, make sure that they're worth that investment before they become DPs, uh, make sure that they adjust culturally and, and to potentially get a, a really good weapon on a bargain deal. Paul, one other player that I want to talk to you about before talking to you a little bit about where your career has gone in the last couple of months, give you a chance to talk about the athletic and what you're doing there. I want to talk to you about Fernando Adi. This is somebody kind of in contrast to Diego Chara that I've always felt was more valued outside of Portland than he has been valued in. He's always been looked at as an elite striker across the league or maybe at that level right below the David Villa type of players. At this point, though, he's losing playing time to Samuel Armenteros. So I wanted to ask you, what kind of value do you think Fernando Adi has around Major League Soccer should somebody want to come in and offer Portland something for him? Whew, that's a tough question. Um, you know, look, this is a guy who for three consecutive seasons, uh, produced double digit goals. And you, you look at that and, and in this league, um, if you look at the teams who are successful, that are successful over the course of a whole season, they, they have one thing in common for the most part. Somebody up top that's finishing consistently. Uh, look at Chicago last year versus this year when they're able to provide service for Nikolic and he's scoring goals at that rate. They're, they were in the mix for a long time for the supporter shield. This year, that production's not there. They've dropped. You look at David Villa and what he does for NYCFC, Joseph Martinez in Atlanta. Uh, Diomande in LAFC has turned them from a good team 
into probably the favorite in the West right now because he's scoring at that rate. They are a totally different team with a goal scoring striker than they are with uh, Mark, you know, Marco Arena, who, uh, you know, I love my Tico, but he wasn't scoring like that. So anytime you can buy a player where you're kind of know what you're buying, you know how many goals per season you're buying, there's going to be a market there. That being said, you know, there is some concern that, you know, his numbers went from 16, 16 down to 10 last year. He missed games. And now, you know, just two goals so far this season, losing his starting job. He's on almost $2 million in total guaranteed compensation. So if you're bringing Adi in, you've got to be bringing him in at $2 million a year above Tam. He's going to take a DP spot. You've got to, you've got to be looking at trying to get back up to that 16, 17 goals per game mark. So I think the difficult part of moving a player like Adi within MLS, even though he's only 27 years old, really just entering his prime in a lot of ways, is going to be how much Portland would look to receive for a player like that. You know, you, it's hard to find um, an equivalent within MLS um, because even if you look at guys like Justin Merrim, um, you know, they're coming off career years when they're traded. Maybe Dom Dwyer is the example Portland will try to use, but I, I don't know that if you ask, and I have, if you talk to GMs across the league, that trade was looked at as an anomaly, and it wasn't looked at as a good trade as far as being a buyer. You know, Orlando overpaid for a player that they were very familiar with, and they're quite dependent on Dom Dwyer now to score for them to be successful, and he hasn't been too consistent. So it's going to be tough. I think that um, because of the price tag and on, on the salary, you know, there's, you're slimming the market a little bit. You know, would a Philadelphia Union, for example, be willing to commit to, you know, $7 million of investment over three years? I'm not sure. Um, and so that, that's the hard part if you're the Timbers and you're looking to move them within MLS. Um, I think that part of what they would have to consider in this package is you're opening up some cap space, you're opening up a DP slot, um, and there's value in that as well. Um, certainly, I think there'd be a market. You know, I think he'd be a great fit in Philadelphia. I think he could work uh, in some ways in Kansas City, even though he's not a running, pressing striker. You know, I think they can work around that. Uh, but I just think that the hard part is going to be finding a price that makes everyone happy. So to kind of mention what Richard was saying earlier, obviously you've written for a number of publications um, and t- done a really great job covering soccer in the United States. Um, but now you're at The Athletic. And, and um, I'm interested to hear a little bit from your perspective on, on your view on The Athletic soccer launch and also kind of this continued move to subscription models within sports media. Yeah, I mean, it's been a really interesting transition for me because – you know, after I spent, uh, let me think now, I, I, too, too long, um, I spent six years, six and a half years working for newspapers, um, and then moved over to 442. And th- those experiences, um, you know, as you go through them, actually, I had six years, I spent nine years in newspapers. As you go through the, that time, you're constantly looking over your shoulder and wondering, you know, is this job secure? Um, you know, why, how are they going to find an excuse to make this job go away? Uh, will this story have enough hits? You know, can I write three stories that'll get a lot of hits to give myself the wiggle room, uh, to write the story I really want to write? And it changes the way you think about the job. And what I've appreciated about going to the athletic and being under the subscription model is that the difference is that 
the value in the stories I write is flipped on its head. It's about what stories can I write that make people want to subscribe? So it has to be different than what everyone else has out there. It has to be more analytical. It has to be more in depth. It has to really stand out from the rest of uh, every other publication that's out there that they can get that content for free. And so those stories that I used to have as like my passion project, um, you know, that came after all the stories I did for the hits, uh, the web click, you know, those are the stories now that take the higher precedence at the athletic. Um, you know, I understand that we're in a world now where you're asked to pay for so many different things that it can be hard to justify spending an extra $5 a month on another website. Um, but I do think that it is going to be the way that the business of journalism of print or digital journalism, however you want to look at it, sustains because, you know, there are too many places where people are getting laid off and where there's no security. And we've given a free content away for so long and tried to find ways to monetize that content um, that hasn't really worked that, you know, I hope that this model um, proves to be successful because I think it will, you know, help that transition occur for newspapers and for other publications throughout the, you know, throughout the marketplace to be able to charge for content that they were charging for before when you had a subscription and the newspaper was sitting at the end of your driveway um, that allowed great journalism to, to thrive and to grow. Um, you know, we've kind of lost that a little bit. And so, you know, I'm rooting for it to be successful. And obviously for my own job security, I'm rooting for it. <laughs> well, Paul, normally I let Jamie do the final sign off, but I just want to say that uh, the year and a half I worked with you was so great. You really challenged me to develop better sources in the women's game. I thought I did some of my best reporting. The first time I ever really cared about reporting as opposed to writing, to be honest with you. And a lot of that was just the enthusiasm by which you go about your day to day job and the cultivation of the relationships that you have within the game. So I wanted that to be out here on the podcast and I wanted everybody to know that I miss working with you, man. And hopefully in the future, we'll have a chance to work together again soon. No, I really appreciate that. As you know, um, I loved my time at 442. I loved working with you guys. You joked uh, when, when I first called about, you know, our editorial calls and you know, they would go, you know, two hours sometimes. And what I loved about it is just hearing, was hearing your perspective and Jeff's perspective perspective and everyone's perspective on um, stories that were going on. And it really helped me think about stories differently and um, nothing but respect for for both of you guys, what you're doing, the coverage that you give soccer fans and, and um, you know, always, always happy to come on and chat and always happy when I see you guys and, and hope to, uh, to bump into you on the road soon. Well, thanks so much again for uh, to Paul for coming on. I, I think that was a really great interview and great perspective to hear. We're kind of in our own world here in Portland, uh, kind of analyzing the Timbers uh, every week. But to get a national perspective and see what someone that's covering the whole league on a day, daily basis uh, thinks of the Timbers, it, it was really interesting to hear what he had to say. And it was emotional for me, too, obviously. <laughs> yeah. um, always being able to talk to old friends is going to put me in a certain state of mind. Speaking of old friends... Yeah, Chris Memorial, Chris Meyer, Chris Meyer, Chris Reifer Memorial Hot Take Interlude. Uh, let's get to it. Do you want to go first? Sure. Um, I wonder if this is more a rant segment or a hot take segment. I think it depends on week to week uh, which direction we're going. But mine, I think, is just more of a rant because I, I don't know if a ton of people disagree with me. 
on this one. But uh, as we found out after the Thorns win against Houston on Sunday, we found out that the Thorns will be u- losing some of their U.S. Women's National Team players um, to the Tournament of Nations ahead of Saturday's game at Sky Blue FC. And the Tournament of Nations obviously doesn't start until a week from Thursday. I, I think some of us expected that maybe they would be joining the national team following the game, but no, they are going in early. And that means the Thorns, who I think have gotten results in the last two games, have had some of their best performances of the season in the last two matches against Houston and Utah, uh, in part because they've had some con- a lot of consistency in their lineup, are going to have to go back to thinking, how do we replace, I assume, players like Lindsey Horan, Tobin Heath, and, and potentially others, uh, to try to make sure they get a win against Sky Blue in a situation where they desperately need three points because we're coming down to the wire and this is a tight playoff race. And I think that it's just so disappointing to see that this tension between U.S. soccer um, and the push and pull between U.S. soccer and the NWSL and the fact that we haven't come to a point where it can be better navigated, where Jill Ellis and the U.S. Women's National Team can recognize that pulling players out of the NWSL in the middle of a playoff race and having them miss games is not a benefit to the league. And if there's a way to avoid that, and there should be a way to avoid that, that's what should be happening. And every year we're talking about this, just as it's getting exciting, just as we're talking about who's going to compete for the playoff spots, suddenly all the national team players are gone. And these teams are playing with their secondary lineups. And it's not really the true, uh, truly seeing the best teams compete uh, for a playoff race. So I, I think it's a negative for the league. And I think the two sides have to do better, uh, U.S. soccer and the NWSL, to figure out something that actually works uh, and not pull players away uh, to miss games uh, to just go into camp, training camp early. You know, you say that that isn't really a hot take, but every time I tweet something about that on Twitter, I'm reminded that there is a whole cohort of fans out there that are way more into the national team than they are the NWSL, way more into national team players than they are individual clubs. So over the past week or so, when this issue has gotten brought up and somebody like Paul Riley chimes in on my timeline to make his views known, his views are pretty similar to yours, you get a lot of people going, you should be thankful to U.S. soccer for even having this league. You should respect players' national team futures, as if Paul Riley doesn't do that. Of course he does that. He wants all of his players to succeed to the highest extent. So I don't think it's a hot take, but I think other people would think it's a hot take. As for something that I think almost everybody is going to think is a hot take, particularly after I had that audible eyebrow raise when we mentioned Diego Chara before, you, you heard us talk about Diego Chara with Paul Tenorio. And this week on MLS Soccer site, we had Charlie Davies, a former MLS player, writing about how he sees a lot of N'Golo Conte in Diego Chara. I think we are getting close to a point where Diego Chara might go from being perpetually underrated to actually overrated. The reason I say this is that there is this tendency with people who really love Diego Chara, tendency in market, to advertise him as being just this incredible player. And on some levels, he is an incredible player. But he's also a player with distinct strengths and then other phases of the game where he doesn't contribute very much. Hey, congratulations, most defensive midfielders are. But we're getting into this Darlington-Nagby-esque territory where we start exaggerating somebody's contributions without talking about the places where they're not contributing or shouldn't be expected to be contributed. And that becomes important when you start comparing players from different teams, different positions, different situations. Diego Chara 
is one of the best players in the league at his position, if not the best player. At least he should be in the conversation. But I think we could, in two or three months' time, be a little bit exaggerating Diego Chara and maybe need a, a re-correction after that. Yeah, I, I disagree. I, I mean, covering this team for, you know, since 2013, it, it, he has just been underrated. And I, I think that he's, I think I look at it more as him finally getting the respect that he deserves. I don't think we're on the cusp of him being overrated. I mean, again, as we talked about, he didn't make the All-Star team. And even though Paul Tenorio says he thinks he's going to be in the MLS best 11, uh, let's wait and see on that because based on, on past uh, precedent. I, I'm not really expecting that. Well, not to put you on the spot, but who do you think is his main competition to get into the best 11? Probably someone who's not a defensive midfielder and is just an attacking midfielder. I don't probably. think... Probably. I think that the, the midfield portion of the best 11 is probably going to be attacking midfielders. Yeah, I don't think there's um, been a, def- a pure defensive no. midfielder in the best 11 for five years. Exactly. I think Osvaldo Alonso got in there. I mean, I Will time. Johnson got in, uh, if you want to, in 2013, I think. Yeah, but he wasn't a pure defensive midfielder. Yeah. And obviously he got in there mostly based on his attacking stats. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, I, I mean, his competition is not going to be competition at his position. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think his position you just don't recognize enough players in that role. And I think he's getting recognition for what he contributes. Um, no one's expecting him like they had with Darlington Agby to suddenly be a goal scorer and someone that's going to be adding assists, but they're finally recognizing, yeah, these other attributes that he contributes uh, are actually worthwhile and important and they deserve credit. And, and so I think we're far away um, from any point where I'm going to be saying that Diego Char is overrated. The reason I bring that up is that for most people that will talk to me about how good Diego Chara is, they can't tell me anything about Will Trapp. They can't tell me anything about Ilya Sanchez. They can't even tell me how good Jeff Laurentowitz has been for Atlanta. They don't have a frame of reference to say relatively how Diego Chara is. And when we're talking about things like this, what we're really saying is Diego Chara is a really good defensive midfielder. Okay, compared to Alexander Ring, compared to Michael Bradley, like what is our standard series? Like what do you know about Ramses Schuler's game? And I think there's just a sentimental quality here. We go, Diego Chara is being underrated. I completely agree with that. But once you start putting him into conversations for best 11, you have to know how good Michael Bradley is. You have to know how good Will Trapp is. You have to know good how good Ilya Sanchez is. You need to know how good Rasmus Schuller is, even though most people probably don't even know that Rasmus Schuller is a player in Major League Soccer. So that's where I think the Rubicon could get crossed. It's one thing to say this player is really good and you don't appreciate him. That I think you can say without relativity. It's another thing to say this player is one of the best in the league. Okay, now let's talk about the other players that you're, you're comparing him to. And I think that's where the line could be crossed. But I just remembered I just said line crossing twice there, so let's move on because I'm sounding a little bit uh, pedantic <laughs> here. Let's talk about the Thorns. Thorns coming off another very convincing result. 3-1 to one was the final. We'll talk about that in detail. But first, let's get to the predictions. Jamie, you pretty much nailed this. You said two to nothing victory, uh, pretty much building on what they did against Utah the week before when they won four to one. You didn't get the exact score, but you got the margin, you got the spirit, you've got the intent of the game. So I want to know how many points you're going to give yourself because you clearly deserve a number. Well, I'm trying to think of what you gave last week. So I'm trying to, to you uh, for the no no what you gave to yourself. I'm trying to match it. Uh, 18.6 <laughs> for predicting something that was more specific than this. Well, I'm going to give myself 17.6. Okay. Um, and you got a Haley Rosso goal. goal. Uh, I, I feel like... 
She did score a goal. <laughs> she she put a ball in the net. Okay, that's a better way to put it. <laughs> she did not score a goal. For people you, who didn't watch, Haley Rosso scored a goal that was uh, correctly waved off for offside. Yeah, so, um, it was definitely close, and uh, you probably wanted to look at the replay after that. But yeah. you didn't get it, so I'll give you two points for getting her putting the ball in the net. <laughs> Thank you for that. All right, let's talk about this game, although I don't think there's going to be much to talk about because a lot of the things that we said last week about the Thorns winning 4-1 at home against Utah are still applicable this week, even though the result is slightly different, the opponent is slightly different, but basically we're just seeing the Thorns play better. And so we have to ask this trademark question that has come up four, five, seventeen thousand times on this podcast, have the Thorns finally turned a corner? <laughs> I, I mean, it's getting closer for me. I would like to see them. They This is the first time they've won two games in a row, I, I think, since May. Uh, it would be the first time this season they've won three games in a row if they th- go to Sky Blue and uh, get a result there. I, I think it's disappointing that they're not going to have their U.S. Women's National Team players going to Sky Blue. And I, I, like I said earlier, I think the consistency that they've had in the lineup in the last two weeks, having close to their top lineup, they've had to make a few changes. Klingenberg was suspended. Uh, Purse got injured, obviously. But overall, they've had the core of their roster, their top roster in there. I think has allowed them to start to turn a corner, as we've said. Um, I want to see what happens at Sky Blue, because I think this is a result that a good team is going to be able to put away against a really not good Sky Blue team. So if they can't get a result there, I I think that raises a a lot of questions about this Thorns team and if they're really going to make a push, because this is a place that a good team should go to with their backs against the wall when they need points and, and find a way to get a win. Let's talk about that in a second because there's so much to talk about with that. Mm -hmm. There are implications on the lineup based on what you were talking about in the hot take segment. Uh, Let's talk about some of the individual performances. You and I both wrote about Lindsay Horan this weekend. And this is another situation where you need to know what's going on across the NWSL. You need to know how good Sam Kerr has been. You need to know how good Crystal Dunn has been. McCall Zerboni has been. I think those are the three biggest competition. Becky Sauerbrunn probably deserves to be in this conversation too. Those are the competition, in addition to Christine Sinclair for the NWSL MVP award, but I personally get the feeling that Lindsay Horan is edging to the front of that conversation. To what degree do you agree? Yeah, I, I think one of the unfortunate things that we've seen in the NWSL, and I think we see this in, in a lot of leagues, is that every single MVP winner has been the golden uh, boot winner. So mm-hmm. <laughs> there hasn't been, I think, a lot of enough thought put into some of these awards. Obviously, there's been some great performances for, from in years past from players like Kerr and Little, but I don't think the MVP is always going to be your golden boot winner. Now, Lindsey Horan right now is tied for the golden boot race, so I think if the season ended today, <laughs> she, I think, would probably be the front runner um, yeah. if you base it on that. But I, but I don't think it's fair to look at her and just say, yeah, she scored nine goals. Uh, that's tied for the league lead. I think what's you have to recognize is not only is she scoring goals, but she's playing a central midfielder midfield role and is top or close to top in the league in duels one, uh, in uh, aerial balls one, in touches, in, in tackles, in recoveries. Uh, you talked about McCall Zerbani. Uh, Lindsay Horan leads the NWSL in duels one with 216. Second is Zerbani, but she only has 181. And so. she's far away, far in front of the third place. Uh, she's yeah. like 50 ahead of the third place. Exactly. So I, I think 
Zerboni deserves a lot of credit this year, and I think that's been a discussion coming out of North Carolina whether she should be in the MVP race. But Absolutely you look should. at some of the statistics. I, I think Lindsay Horan on both sides of the ball has proved herself as one of the best players in the NWSL, and the fact that she can do all of that, mm-hmm. um, she deserves a lot of credit. And I, I'm not sure if she'll get it if she doesn't win the Golden Boot race, but uh, if it's just based on that, that's going to be unfortunate. Talking about some other players within the Thorns team that made major contributions on Sunday, let's talk about Anna Sunagorshevich. She's somebody that fans rightly were a little bit um, skeptical of after yeah. her first couple of months because she wasn't putting in the goals. She's now putting in the goals in addition to the constant movement, in addition to the defending that we've seen her do. Uh, the question that we have here on our notes what is a new Sunagoshevich, a confident one, somebody that's finishing like she did this weekend? What does that do for the Thorns' attack? Yeah, I, I think it, it does a lot. Uh, when you're, I think this attack for a lot of season has been over-reliant on Christine Sinclair and Lindsay Horan. Uh, I think when Tobin Heath has played, she's contributed there, but she's obviously missed a significant amount due to injuries. Um, and Sunagoshevich, hasn't really put in the goals and assists until recently. But to have all four of those players rather than just two of them contributing and potentially scoring goals and, and being in a weapon in that area it is just going to make them a much better attacking team. And I, I think you talked about uh, uh, Anna's movement. Uh, that's something Mark Parsons pointed to. I, I think there was a section of the season that not only was she not scoring and not adding assists, I don't think she was adding all that much. There was maybe a section of games as she was getting used to the NWSL. But on top of being starting to convert these goals, adding some assists, and providing movement around the box and, and causing problems for the opposing defense, I, I think she's really adding a lot right now to this attack. Let's move on to a question from a listener. Donna asks, thoughts on Adriana French's performance? So... For people who don't know, the context of this is that French had a ball that she was trying to catch, go off of Kalia Ojai for Houston's goal in the game. And she also had a dramatic moment against Rachel Daly where Rachel Daly was able to take the ball off of her about 12 yards from goal. And while A.D. French was able to recover, some people are wondering whether that recovery also entailed a penalty that should have been given up. So, Jamie, thoughts on French's performance? Yeah, it wasn't her best. Uh, That's... Uh, definitely for sure. I, I think we've grown to expect quite a lot from uh, AD French, and I, I think it's tough as a goalkeeper. You make one mistake, and it's way more noticeable than if a midfielder gets a ball taken off of them or something like that. Um, so she had a couple mistakes in the game, it, it, opportunities that she could have done better on, um, but I don't think this is a trend or anything. We're going to see her kind of spiral down downwards or anything. I, I think she's a very good keeper and has been for the Thorns. I, I think she just had a few off moments. It's disappointing whenever you see a player have a hard time, but within the context of a season or two years, really, where she hasn't really done anything like this, I think you can chalk it up to an aberration. And yes, AD French isn't perfect. Uh, You don't want to see these things repeated, but I think um, you can say it wasn't her best game, like you said, and we can move on. Uh, We can move on to talking about Sky Blue. Uh, Ahead of that, though, some injury updates. Andresinha, Caitlin Ford... Midge Purse are still the people on the report here. We don't have any new information, but nothing has really changed since last week. Andresinha, Caitlin Ford, they're in frame to make contributions this weekend in New Jersey, whereas Midge Purse looks like she's still three or four weeks out. Going on to the game, you already talked about this a little bit, about expectations for this game. 
how the Thorns really need to win this one. They are still incredibly disappointed that they didn't beat Sky Blue at home. Sky Blue only has three points this season, and one of those points came at Providence Park. So it's a pretty ignominious result. However, if they seek to improve on this this weekend, they're going to do so without their U.S. Women's National Team players who are being called up early ahead of the Tournament of Nations. So what do you expect from this game? Yeah, I mean, even with losing the their U.S. Women's National Team players, they're still going to have, like we just talked about, Anna Maria Cernan-Gorchevich, who, who's playing better than the pack. They're still going to have Christine Sinclair. I assume they'll still have Emily Menges, although I, whether they have Sonnet is um, questionable. They'll still have a lot of their core players in there. So Celeste Borrier has been performing really well in the midfield as well. She should be in there. They have enough talent to beat a Sky Blue team that has been absolutely terrible this year, except maybe in that 1-1 draw where the Thorns let them stay in the game. Um, this, this is all about the Thorns. It's not about really how Sky Blue performs. If the Thorns play their game, if they go in with the right mentality, right game plan, and execute, they'll win. And they have to win. I, I think... Yes, there still is a chance they'll make playoffs if they don't win. They, they, they still have seven games left. They'll still have six games left. But this is an opportunity that, opportunity they can't pass up in such a tight playoff race. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And that feeds into some perspective. I think we're going to have this note of perspective on every podcast going forward. Thorns are still in fifth place. The number of games remaining are getting to the point where I'm actually worried about it. So a couple of weeks ago, and I think even on last week's podcast, I said, you know, even if they lose this game, I think they can still recover. A couple of weeks ago, I said it was actually more important to play well than even win the game. They won four to one. So it wasn't that big of a <laughs> big of a tension there for this game, though. I do almost feel like this is a must-win game, mostly because every team above the Thorns also seems like they are hitting their stride, too. They're still in fifth place. They're not tracking down Chicago. They're not tracking down Orlando. They're not tracking down Seattle yet. They'll have head-to-head games with a lot of those teams still, but they can't afford to not get points against the Sky Blue and be able to make those games later in the year against the Seattles at the end of the season or Orlando again and make those into six-point games. Yeah, I think you looked at... I think at this point there are two points, um, I believe, behind both Orlando and uh, Chicago. With the game in hand, but still. Yeah, but had they lost to Houston, suddenly you're looking at a five-point gap. and you're. You or if they'd beaten Sky Blue, you're looking at a zero-point gap. Yes, I mean, you can point at any game, but my point is if you drop points and the other team pulls ahead, I yep. mean, suddenly you're looking at a gap that isn't a one-game change. Exactly. You have to get two games out of it, and with limited games left – that's not something you want. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you put it best. You want to make those games that are coming up games where you can leapfrog the other teams, and that means you have to keep winning now. Let's go to some listener questions from Curtis. Can you take Mike Petke's recent rant on refs and expand on it? Your thoughts on the future of officiating, especially in the NWSL, and whether poor officiating hurts the NWSL. So for people that did not see this weekend's comments from Real Salt Lake coach Mike Petke, he was talking about the inconsistency of the officiating in MLS, the use of VAR in MLS, but more he's just talking about a lack of confidence in the standard of officiating in MLS. So let's take that. Let's apply it to the NWSL. And how big of an issue do you think the quality of officiating is for the NWSL right now? Yeah, I think it's been an issue. I think there's been some games that you don't notice the refs too much. It's overall a good performance. But then you have other games where – there's consistently calls that you're wondering what the ref saw there or what they missed or it was that really offsides how did they uh how did they come to that conclusion and it doesn't feel 
like the refs are you know at, at the there might be qualified to some degree but aren't that the level that you want for a professional league that's trying to showcase the best possible product that they can and i think the errors have been problematic over the years um and it does hurt the league when you see obvious errors now the nwsl doesn't have var so if you see those obvious errors they're not corrected. It was interesting to see, you know, some of the players going for the VAR sign uh, <laughs> in this game against Houston. Um, so it, it stands out even more. They can't have it corrected by by some sort of outside mm. element. Uh, I, I want to see better refing in the NWSL. I think we'd like to see better refing in MLS, but I still think MLS is getting the better refs of the pool oh, available in the United States. Yeah, so clearly. you're getting kind of the leftovers for the NWSL yeah. and it's a it's a top professional league if you're getting the leftovers that means you can't be totally showcasing your best product yeah and rory dames mentioned this last year rory dames chicago's coach when chicago was here for their season finale and he just said i want somebody to write about this we're not going to get the best referees for this playoff game and i'm not saying we should have them for regular season games but for these three games at the end of the season there should be some consideration to assigning the best refs possible to our league and I don't see that changing this year either. Yeah. Um, the only the only thing I want to add is, for me, I don't expect to, uh, officials to be perfect. To be honest, I don't even expect them to be good. I just expect them to try their best. But one thing that I do expect is that they protect players, and that's not happening in the NWSL. Players are getting hurt because of their poor officiating. Jeffrey asks, who will be missing at Sky Blue and who will need to step up for the Thorns to get a result? So we don't know who is going to be missing for this game. Uh, we can suspect players like Tobin Heath and Lindsey Horan and Emily Sonnet. Uh, Emily Sonnet didn't get called in last camp, but that was because of a back injury. She's healthy now. So I think we can expect at least those three to be called in. We'll find out about that this week, hopefully. At least we'll find out about that. Uh, but who were the players that are going to have to step up? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, y- y- we, we'll see if it's those three. We'll see if it, it's only two of those or, or potentially more. Obviously, we had seen Purse called in earlier this year. I so still you- think U.S. soccer should call up Haley Rasso. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think Australia would be pretty annoyed with that one. I'm but, living in denial on that one. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, we'll see. There might be a few other positions we don't mention today. We find out tomorrow that uh, are in play or, or maybe Sonnet stays and the center back situation's not what it is. We'll see. But if you make the assumption on those three, I, I mean, Lindsey Horan missing is obviously huge um, for the team, as is Tobin Heath missing. <laughs> yeah, we can't, I mean, hear, those, we can't sit here and call her MVP and then be like, yeah, oh, no, it's not going to be a problem. Yeah, those two are going to be huge. Um, I mean, players like Christine Sinclair, I mean, this is a game where I, I think she really has to take on a leadership role and play a, a bigger role in, in the attack and creating chances and setting things up, um, given that Heath and Haran won't be a, be there. I, I think Cernan Gorsevich, um, if she wants to prove you know, she can be a consistent finisher, this is the game to do it yeah. um, when you're missing some of that other attacking talent and then on the defensive end i mean whether it's reynolds coming back in or or what they decide to do um the 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 partnership between sonnet and mengus has been so important for the thorns team and and we have seen when there's been absences and inconsistency there big errors on defense and they need to avoid big errors on defense that that cannot happen at this point in the season especially in a key game like this so whoever comes in to replace um i want to say maybe Catherine reynolds whoever comes in to replace Emily Sonnet needs to be on their game as well. So going back to the U.S. national team, there are two players that we didn't mention that I hope at least get consideration. A.D. French, obviously, it's almost it's almost blasé to mention that she should get a U.S. national team call-up at this point. She's the best U.S. goalkeeper out there. She should be called in. She hasn't <laughs> been called in before. I don't 
I wouldn't be shocked if she didn't get called in now. Um, and then Megan Klingenberg to me has been the second best left yeah. back in the league. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that ship has sailed, but if it has, make it turn around and come back to port because they need to come pick her up. As far as the, the players that need to be replaced, I think we be, can be fairly confident that Kath Reynolds is going to start in central defense for Emily Sonnet. In midfield, it's going to be either Ange Salem getting her first start or Andrew Senior will be back healthy. And then in attack, I would expect Mallory Weber to start because she does have the versatility to play wide. She can slot right in at left wing. But to me, that's the more open question. Do you do you put Kath at right back or Hubley back into the team and push Ellie Carpenter into attack? I would be surprised if they did that, but there are options. I think the most straightforward answer, though, is Mallory Weber gets the start. Um, let's go to our end of show predictions. We have three games to predict this week, starting today, as you hear this podcast, Timbers versus Los Angeles FC in U.S. Open Cup. The winner makes it to the final four of this competition. Jamie, who is going to be the winner? I am going to go with uh, the Timbers. Whoa. I... <laughs> is this some optimism that we're hearing from the Timbers one beat reporter? I, yeah, I, maybe they it's... won you over. Maybe it's just because they, um, uh, you know, they've just played so well recently and they've found a way to go down and get a scoreless draw there. Maybe it's because I think that LAFC will probably rotate the roster as well. So we'll see two lesser teams from both sides and that could have an impact. I think if LAFC goes with their best roster and the Timbers rotate, that that's going to be a different story. Yeah. Um, but I don't see that happening. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to be confident about the Timbers because they're on a 14 game on bean streak. So. I clearly don't blame you because my side bet is that the Timbers have more shots than LAFC, which I think is a kind of a risky bet given how the Timbers have been setting up on the road. But if you do think that Giovanni Savarese and his staff are going to make some major changes to the 11, what you're left with is a team that has to play a different way. And I think that different way is going to lead to more shots and um, hopefully a successful result. I came really close to making a prediction there. I shouldn't said hopefully, but I was pausing because I got tripped up over myself. Let's move on quickly to Saturday's game, <laughs> Timbers versus Montreal. Montreal making their visit to Providence Park. Jamie, how's this one going to play out? Yeah, I, I, I think this is a winnable game for the Timbers, even with Diego Chara out. I, I think that's the only big question mark for me, just because they haven't been able to get that win without him but I do think they're going to break that streak and um, be a close game but the Timbers are going to win two to one and I'm going with a bet that I don't feel good about a side bet but based on Montreal's history here based on the fact that the Timbers are coming off two very tough games away from home they'll be traveling on Thursday um, probably only have one day before this game fully settled in the market I'm thinking Montreal scores the first goal here in this game Uh, we've seen this happen with Montreal before and um, a lot of these players have played in Providence Park before. I think maybe Montreal gets off to a sh- uh, strong start in this one that the Timbers then have to respond to. Final game, Thorns, Sky Blue. Jamie? I am I'm a little concerned with the absence of the U.S. Women's National League players because Rightly I think so. the inconsistency this year for the Thorns has uh, led to some poor results and been an issue. So having to change the lineup is not something that I'm excited to see. Um, it is Sky Blue. They only have three points this season. The Thorns are going to really want this win after drawing Sky Blue uh, at home. So I think they're going to eke out the the win, but it's going to be one to nothing. And I'm going with a side bet that I have informed Jamie in our notes that I want extra, extra points for if it comes good. <laughs> because one, Andresinha is not guaranteed to play this weekend. Two, she hasn't gotten a goal or an assist since joining Portland. So for me to say that Andresinha gets an assist, 
maybe that means pork chop doesn't get his medicine like he really <laughs> should be getting. Uh, but I want some kind of benefit. Not that I want pork chops me- medicine, but I definitely, if Andresinia does get on the score sheet this weekend with an assist, want some consideration for the fact that it's unclear right now if she'll even play. All right. Um, <laughs> no, yeah. no, no confirmation there. No assurances <laughs> for me. Just like, all right, let's move on to fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. Um, I, I, I think that you can have some consideration. Um, oh wait, I'm giving the points next week. You are so okay. I just, true. I just don't want the eye rolls I got last week. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see what you give out. I'm not guaranteeing um, a lack of eye rolls. Richard. Apologize for the alarm. We're working on that, but my dog does get pills. At no, 2 don't PM apologize usually. for pork chop. <laughs> so, and if anybody um, hears that alarm, it's because pork chop needs his medicine. So please don't get al- mad at the alarm. What you're getting mad at. Is a, is a dog that needs medicine <laughs> being deprived of, of his pills. Just taking a stride. Um, it's all good. What I, what I will apologize for is that I don't have the fantasy update. And so we might have to try to post that on Twitter or get back to you guys next week. Um, Beer City FC is winning. <laughs> well, okay. On that note, um, we're a soccer made in Portland. And that's all for today. So um, you can find us every week on Stumptown Footy, Timbers.com, and Oregon Live. Or you can subscribe on uh, iTunes and Stitcher. And until next week, take care. <laughs>